This is the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheiman, brought to you by Ends Group Insurance. Ends Group is ensuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. All right, it is Midlife Mail Podcast time. Greg Scheinman here with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Mission here help men navigate middle age, achieve a better quality of life. Does that mean we always have midlife males themselves on the show? No, it does not. And this week, I'm bringing you somebody extremely, extremely valuable, extremely cool. I really like this young man, Sahil Bloom. Sahil is the vice president of Altamont Capital out in San Francisco, California. He received an MA in public policy and a BA in economics and sociology from Stanford University. While he was at Stanford, he twice received the Bruce Cameron Memorial Award for Excellence in Academics, Athletics, and Leadership, stemming from his contributions as a pitcher on the varsity baseball team. This young man is something special. We got connected through the D10 organization, the D10 Decathlon executive athlete event that I've been on the board with. Sahil, again, is out in San Francisco, which is one of the newer markets for the D10. Got connected through the podcast, through the D10, through his reading of the Midlife Mail newsletter, which I greatly appreciate. And now here he is on the show. You never totally know how these conversations are, are going to go. And in this case, what I really got from it more than anything was I got so much value as a father, as a parent, as an individual, again, who lost his father at a very young age and is trying to raise two successful teenage boys, set them on the right path. My older one is going to be off in college in a couple of years. So it was amazing to hear from Sahil about his upbringing, about his motivation how he got to Stanford. He played college baseball. His father is an incredible professor and chairman now at Harvard. He's got an incredibly bright sister. We talked about all of that stuff, the questions that I had for him about his upbringing, about achievement, success, failure, finding your passion, support. It really helped me tremendously. So on a personal level, I'm thanking and shouting out to Sahil for bringing me that. On a professional level, he's doing some incredible things, sitting on the board of Fox, the uh, racing, biking company that does all kinds of apparel and gear. Really, really awesome stuff. I see their things all the time. Own a bunch of them at Bike Barn across the street from my house. I'm always in there. Shout out to Fox and to Bike Barn. Uh, Brixton's one of my favorite brands. He sits on the board of that company as well. So just a really fun, great conversation. And in a time of uncertainty and unprecedented challenges that we are faced with as we're both when we did this call, uh, sitting in our own homes during lockdown, the coronavirus, just bring some real positivity, some real great perspective, uh, and some real genuine optimism about opportunity that exists in times of, of crisis and chaos, and how you carry yourself, conduct yourself, pivot, navigate, all sorts of really great stuff. So- With that in mind, 
let's just get to it with Sahil Bloom on the Midlife Mail podcast. So let me ask you, you this as we jump right into it too. Um, first, starting with, you know, how are you personally, health-wise, uh, sanity-wise, you know, how are you doing right now? Yeah, I'm good so far. Uh, yeah, sanity is a separate question. Health-wise, physically, I, I feel great. Um, you know, I, uh, I had actually been at some meetings in the Middle East prior to everything really blowing up. And so upon returning, I took the step of, of uh, doing a kind of self-isolation just to make sure that I wasn't putting anyone else in jeopardy. Uh, and I think that that was the right decision. Never experienced any symptoms and, and assume I've been fine throughout, but, um, but just wanted to kind of take the prudent measures on that front. So physically, totally fine. Uh, you know, mentally uh, and from a sanity perspective, it's been, uh, you know, it's been tough. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't lie and say otherwise, I think going from being a very active, you know, outdoor or outdoors a lot, you know, a lot of walking, a lot of travel, um, to, you know, being cooped up and, and kind of stuck at home for a period of weeks that now looks like it could be a period of months. It's, uh, you know, it's difficult for anybody. I'm sure you can appreciate that. Absolutely. And, and where are you for those don't, for those who don't know? Where are you yeah, located? Based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, my wife and I are in East Bay. Um, we uh, recently built a house over in East Bay. So luckily have a little bit more space than we did in our tiny little apartment that we had previously. But um, but that's where we're at right now. And is San Francisco, is that area on complete lockdown now? Yeah, yeah. San Francisco was one of the earliest cities to go on full lockdown. Um Credit to to the administration here and to the mayor for for taking that effort early, as it does seem like some of the numbers in in San Francisco in particular have actually improved a bit uh, in recent days. But San Francisco was early on the full kind of shelter in place order. The state obviously followed shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. So, how has this changed your daily routine uh, from from what you normally do, um, and maybe even throw a few few tips out there for what you've learned, what you're learning, you know, about this situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in short, it's changed it a lot. Um, I'm a I'm a morning person. I'm one of the rare morning people. So, my daily routine typically was I'd be up around um, three forty five or four a.m. Uh, I would, you know, get to the gym by a little before five work out from 5 to 6, 6.30, get into the office by around 6.30-ish, um, you know, and kind of have a full day there, try to get home by 6.30 or 7 to have dinner with my wife. So pretty full days, packed, always trained early in the morning. Um, that was just kind of my thing. Um, with this new, you know, stuck-at-home sit schedule, I've tried to maintain the consistency around getting up early, um, it's just, it's one thing that I feel like I can totally control that keeps that consistency in my daily life. I've tried to maintain doing workouts early in the morning of some sort, though, you know, going outside in the dark has kind of put some challenges in that. And so just trying to get fresh air, I've been spending more time in the evenings working out, um, as there's been, you know, just the, the daylight hours, um, tend to kind of give me the energy to go outside and do that. Just, I don't have a, you know, I don't have a gym set up in the way that, the way that I did previously. So I'd say the number one thing I've learned is to just be adaptable. Um, 
you know, I, I always thought I had to do my routine exactly the way I was used to. Otherwise, everything would fall apart. Um, and I found over the last few weeks, just, you know, go with the flow a little bit, um, you know, keep the things that that, uh, you know, you like to have consistent in your daily life. But don't be afraid of a little bit of change here and there and, you know, figure that your body and your, your mind can kind of adapt to those situations and to those changes. Absolutely. Good. Good advice there. I want to ask you a little bit about um, the change from team sports, you know, and athletics and training as part of a team to now being on, you know, being on your own. Uh, you you played baseball. You were at Stanford um, there. Talk to me a little bit about the transition. You know, I talked to a bunch of athletes about the transition of kind of being part of a team and team sports to. You, you can't just get a pickup game of baseball, you know, out there or, tra- or train that way, you know? So talk to me a little bit about that type of transition. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a tough one. And I think a lot of people struggle with it and, and I was no different. You know, you go from a world where a you're training and you know, the, the regimen is kind of forced upon you, you know, college sports is a full-time job, you know, 30 to 40 hours a week of practice and training and you have the built-in motivation of, you know, in the case of baseball, 35 other guys um, that you're alongside pushing each other and competing against. And so, you know, just I'm a guy, I have, you know, competitive juices that are flowing, testosterone gets pumping and you push yourself harder. And so you take that away and you go into an individual context of, okay, now, you know, we're talking about my life. We're not talking about training for baseball anymore. You're talking about you know, a world where you need to, you need to be able to push yourself, you need to be able to compete against yourself. And it, it's really challenging at first. Um, and, you know, you, you don't have set deadlines or goals that you're necessarily pushing towards, um, which can make it, make it, uh, you know, a, a challenging transition. And it was for me. I, and candidly, it's one that I still wrestle with. Um, I love, you know, finding reasons to push for things, whether that's, you know, as simple as a vacation that you have coming up and you want to, you know, feel and look your best for it. Or if it's, you know, an athletic competition, whether it's something like the D10 or, um, you know, or a golf tournament that you're planning to play in, just something that gives you kind of near term um, or medium term goals and deadlines that you can really push and drive against. I've always found kind of gives you the gives you the extra push that you might have been used to as an athlete in the team sport. Mm-hmm. Did this kind of drive discipline consistency? Where did it come from? Do you have family mentors, you know, uh, solely self-motivated? Are you, are you different the same from your family? Your relative, like talk to a little bit about, about where that comes from. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. It's one I, it's one I reflect on a lot. Um, you know, it, it comes from my dad. Um, hey, no other way to put it. Uh, my dad has, you know, what I've always characterized as like a sickening, maniacal discipline and work ethic. Um, and growing up, you know, I thought it was crazy, the stuff he would do. And uh, he's a he's an academic. He's a uh, longtime uh, professor and uh, at Harvard uh, in Boston. And the uh, he's the chairman of the public health school there. Um, which is highly relevant now, obviously, given everything going on. Mm-hmm. But, but the guy just puts in work. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I grew up seeing that. I grew up, you know, admiring him um, as a man and as a person who, you know, I just knew I could count on and family always knew we could count on him. And, uh, you know, I always just kind of thought, 
hey, when I grow up, that's that's how I want to be. I just want to be able to punch the clock every single day. You know, maybe not wow people every single day with something or the other, um, you know, off the charts, but just show up every single day because that's so much of life. Um, and, and he really instilled that in me. And so seeing that and looking up to that for as long as I did, um, it just became a part of who I wanted to be and who I knew I would become. Do you have siblings? Yeah, I have a uh, one older sister um, who was three and a half, four years older than me, um, and uh, and now lives in Boston as well. So, was Boston home for you guys as you were growing up, um, or or was San Fran- did San Francisco take you out there for work? No, so Boston was home. Uh, born in New York City, my dad was the chairman of the economics department at Columbia. Um, we moved to Boston when I was five years old and I grew up there, uh, in a small town outside, outside Boston, uh, moved out to, to California in 2009, uh, on the, uh, baseball scholarship to come play out here at Stanford. And, you know, candidly, <laughs> you move from the freezing cold in Boston and come out and experience this weather for a short period of time. It's very hard to move back. So when we got engaged, my uh, my then fiance, now wife, moved out here, and and we've kind of made our home here. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this college decision a little bit too. Um, so so far, you've you've mentioned Columbia, where your dad was working, and then Harvard, where he's currently working, and then you went to Stanford yourself. Uh, how was this in the Bloom household making this decision? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it was a uh, it was a weird decision and a weird process for us. Um, I uh, you know I come from an academic family. My parents met at Princeton in grad school. Um, my sister, you know, I had always grown up being the kind of ne'er do well younger brother. Uh, my sister was unbelievably high achieving throughout her academic life. Went to Yale, um, then went on to Harvard Business School. Um, she's definitely the smart one uh, of the two of us. She's, she's extremely, extremely impressive. Um, so I was always kind of like, you know, what is this kid doing? He's not studying. I was playing baseball. You know, my mom didn't really understand it. I come from a, you know, a mixed race background. My mom is Indian. My dad's white American. And so my mom always just assumed, you know, oh, her son's going to become a doctor. Uh, not to stereotype, but that was always her. You know, she still, honestly, to this day, asks me um, if, I, if I'm sure I don't want to become a doctor. So uh, I still give her a hard time about it, but man, it's, um, it's funny. So when I was when I was starting to kind of think about colleges, it was like my freshman, sophomore year of high school. Um, and I was thinking, you know, I'd go try to play baseball at one of the Ivy League schools. I was you know, pretty undersized freshman, sophomore pitcher, um, throwing 80 miles an hour-ish. And then over the next off-season, I kind of took my training to the next level, um, found an incredible, incredible trainer who at the time was just starting out and now is the head of performance for the New York Yankees and has a massive kind of training empire in the baseball world. Um, But that kind of took me to the next level. And so all of a sudden I was throwing – 89, 91. And, you know, you get a lot more interest at those levels. And so very quickly, it went from, um, you know, looking at some of the Ivy League schools to I had a scholarship offer from Stanford. Um, And this was all, you know, happening during my senior year. The uh, the recruiting process kicks off much earlier than normal college applications. So I kind of blinked and one day was committed and and accepted to, uh, to Stanford. And it was you know, very foreign to my parents. Neither one of them came from an athletic background. Neither one of them really understood what was going on. Um, 
And uh, it made the decision pretty easy in that regard. Um, you know, Stanford University, unbelievable academic, uh, academic school. And then from a baseball standpoint, just incredible. Um, so it was uh, a uh, definitely a different process and a weird process, but a, a really, really interesting one, to say the least. What was it about baseball? Uh, and when did you begin to specialize in sport, you know, as a, as a parent myself, you know, um, we've always wrestled with early sports specialization, you know, and, and early sports specialization is absolutely a trend. Um, at, at this point, um, I don't know if trend is necessarily even the right word. It might be a, a problem for the, <laughs> a little bit there too, but what was it about baseball that you gravitated towards? And when did you really start to, uh, start to focus? Yeah, it's a great question. I, um, you know, I started to focus probably my sophomore year of high school. I um, I always really enjoyed baseball because of the team, but then also solo aspect of it. Um, you know, baseball as a pitcher tends to be a very solitary um, sport. You know, you're out there on the mound by yourself. The entire pace of the game is dictated by you. Um, it's lonely at times, but it's also incredibly gratifying when it, when it goes well and when you're in that zone. Uh, and I always love that kind of pressure on, um, situation, you know, it was just something that I thrived around and, and always kind of lived for. And I would channel that in all of my training and it really motivated me. You know, if you're going to be the guy on the mound, you want the ball, uh, it, it really pushed me in all of my training. And so, Around my sophomore year of high school, um, I made the decision to, to kind of turn off basketball um, and, uh, and some of the other sports I'd played. I'd played tennis loosely as well to, uh, to really focus on baseball. It also helped that I was dramatically better at baseball than I was at any other sport <laughs> um, in terms of, in terms of uh, you know, making that decision. I, I had no, no future in basketball or any other sport there, um, but for whatever reason, I was able to throw a ball harder than most people. And so figured, you know, now's the time to kind of make the push and, and really try to get as good as possible at this. Mm -hmm. You know, coming from a, a family of academics, as you mentioned earlier, when you went to college, was academic something you thought you were going to go into yourself? Um, did you have an idea or again, really kind of a focus of, of what you wanted to do or was college a time for you to kind of try different things and, and think about it? Yeah, I would say more of the latter. Um, candidly, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I went to college. If I would have, if you would have asked, you know, 18 year old Sahil what he wanted to do, I would have said play professional baseball um, and thought that that was really realistic to make a career as a baseball player. You know, I was that cocky little kid, you know, coming out of a small high school in Massachusetts thinking I was thinking I was all that because um, I could throw a ball, you know, 88 or 90 miles an hour. Um, and, you know, frankly, if I'm being totally honest, I came to Stanford and got there freshman year and got punched in the mouth um, academically, athletically, you know, you name it, um, you know, show up at classes and you thought you were smart. Well, now you're not. Uh, you know, you thought you were good at baseball. No, you're not really that good at baseball either. Uh, and, and that experience, I would say, was probably the most important and impactful one that I've had in my entire life. Um, just getting punched in the mouth one time. You know, uh, candidly, I, I'm of the opinion that not enough kids get punched in the mouth. 
um, metaphorically mm-hmm. or literally um, these days. And, and it leads to kind of a softening of, of, uh, you know, of culture that, uh, that I think is, is, is a real negative. Um, and for me, you know, getting punched in the mouth that way, the way I did, uh, was a humbling experience and one that kind of put me onto a better footing as I thought about, okay, I'm really going to have to work for this. This isn't going to be a free ride in any direction that I go. Yeah. In that, to, to that respect also, um, and, and I completely agree with you, uh, your upbringing with your family as it relates to, you know, their parenting style, um, and maybe elaborate on this a little bit, maybe allowing you to get kind of punched in the mouth a little bit. Um, and also what you took away from your own upbringing, the experience you're discussing at Stanford and how you're going to look at that, you know, uh, as a parent yourself. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think about it a lot with my parents. I mean, my parents, I would say, took the approach of they they let me and my sister pursue our passions to the fullest, whatever it was. And it was, you know, they weren't forcing us in any direction. But if I was interested in, you know, if I wanted to do drumming one week, my parents were all in on, we'll get you a set of drums, we'll help you go, you know, we'll get you lessons, etc. You know, if I wanted to play baseball, it was, you know, we'll get you lessons, we'll make sure that, you know, you have what you need. They allowed me to really pursue my passions uh, and also experience the failures that come with that. And so I I found most of my failures in those transformative moments as a kid in sports. Uh, And my parents didn't sugarcoat those things. You know, my, my grandfather or my, um, or my dad, you know, were always kind of my biggest, um, you know, the biggest voices in my ear uh, from a sports perspective. And when I would experience failures, and as a kid, that's tragic. It feels like the end of the world. Um, I, I, they they were always very good about, you know, kind of sitting back and telling me that, you know, th- these things happen. It's a metaphor for life, and it's about how you get up from the situations, not about not getting knocked down because it's going to happen. Um, and I always really appreciated that about my parents. They weren't hard on me in terms of forcing me to practice, forcing me to study. They really allowed me to kind of pursue my passions. And, and uh, you know, I would say they guided me with how they were as people um, and always seeing their work ethic and their desire to better themselves and learn and grow. Um, but they didn't force anything upon me. Um, and so as I think about you know, my own parenting style in the future, you know, if I'm lucky enough to have kids someday, um, you know, that, that that's probably how I want to approach it. I want, I want to allow my kids the freedom to pursue their passions and, and uh, give them what they need in order to do that. Yeah. I want to stay on this a little bit, especially as, um, frankly, you're closer, um, in stage and age, you know, even, um, to my oldest son, you know, at this point, who's going to head off to college in just a couple of years. Um, and it's a scary time um, and an uncertain time as a parent. And you start thinking about things like motivation, you know, can you teach or coach motivation? You know, can you coach, you know, effort, you know, what can you do to instill kind of work ethic um, and effort? And you, ma- and you mentioned, you know, not being forced to do certain things as well as, that your parents were supportive in letting you follow and pursue your passions. I've got some questions as it pertains to, okay, so you want to take drums and, and you go out and you get the drum set and then you decide maybe I don't like drums so much. You know, where's the balance or if, if there is about 
kind of, if you know what I mean, like quitting versus persevering and you wanted this and how long do you stick with things to kind of make decisions? And I know there's a long, long winded way of going it. And, and do you really feel like you can, you can coach or you can teach you know, effort or motivation? How do you yeah. feel about that? kind of stuff? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's very fair. You know, my, my, my parents rule was always, you know, if you don't stick to it, then you're paying for it. Um, <laughs> whatever it was. And so, um, that, that tended to be a motivation too, to not just go jump at a million things, um, whatever it was, but it is, you know, hang on, hard. let me stop you. What did you have, what did you have to do to pay for it? I mean, again, you're, you're a kid. Chores, what what do you have back. to do? Yeah. Chores, you know, work it back, mowing the lawn, you know, dishes, things like that, that, uh, you know, kind of er- earning it back through allowance and chores. Gotcha. Okay. Go on. I cut you off. No, you're good. You're good. Yeah. You know, I I think the motivation one is one that I think about a lot um, because I, you know, at times during my life as a kid, um, my mom would get really frustrated with me and angry with me because she felt like I wasn't motivated academically. You know, I got a B plus in some classes as a a freshman in high school. And um, I remember my mom having like a really tough talk with me about how I was not setting myself on a good path and it wasn't up to the standards of our family. And I remember just telling her, you know, I need to learn that for myself. Um, yeah, you can tell me that and I, it, it goes in one ear and I understand, but I need to just learn that for myself. And so I think, you know, as kids grow up, it, it's really challenging. I, I don't think you can just teach and, you know, push so hard that they are all of a sudden hardworking and self-motivated. Um, I, I really do think it has to be, you know, from within um, for it to be genuine and real. And I don't think there's a secret recipe to that, um, that, uh, you know, that kind of leads to it in all cases. I think I think kids and young adults need to kind of develop that and they need to get, you know, have those humbling experiences and have those situations of of real like terror um, that then kind of on, on the other side of those fears you kind of find that motivation, find that success. Is there anything in particular that stands out that you wish would have been different? I mean, obviously you've, you've turned out pretty well. You come from a clearly a great family um, and you've accomplished so much already, but is there anything that you can like, kind of wish that was different, you know, or, yeah. or you know, Greg, you may yeah. not want to go there, you know, like with your kid. I think it's a fair question. I, um, you know, if there's one thing I could go back and change, it would be the type of person I was in high school. Um, I was just kind of an asshole, uh, <laughs> for, for lack of a better way to put it. And, you know, reflecting on it, it I, I just don't really like the type of, you know, friend, family member, um, classmate, community member that I was. Um, you know, and I think a lot of it was driven by, uh, this, you know, big fish, small pond syndrome that I, I feel like in hindsight I had, you know, I thought I was, you know, the most incredible thing in the world. Um, and, you know, thought because I could, you know, was good at baseball in a small little town in Massachusetts, that that meant something. Um, and candidly, I just don't like, you know, how that kind of changed my personality. I think I, I acted like somebody that was not true to who I really was. Um, I, I, I've thought about this a lot uh, because this past year I had my um, my 10 year high school reunion. And so I got to go back and, you know, catch up with old friends and see a lot of the people that I hadn't seen since high school, since we graduated. And 
I just feel like such a different person um, than I was and so much more true to who I really am today um, than the last time those people had seen me. And so it was, a, it was actually a kind of a cathartic experience, um, you know, going and getting to talk to people and kind of just have like a real conversation with someone in a adult context now that I've, you know, kind of changed who I really feel like I am to be, you know, to be more consistent with my values and my family's values. You know, not to, not to give you a full pass on it, but, but how much (laughs) of it is you think typical teenager, you know, and then what I think is even more important is some of the stuff you touched on, uh, later on, which is kind of the reflection, really giving it a lot of thought, the self-awareness. Uh, and what did, what did you do or steps that, you, that you've taken to become more self-aware or what drove you towards that type of reflection? Yeah. Yeah. I think some of it is the teenage thing that you mentioned. I don't want to give myself a full pass on it because I don't want to forget um, you know, how that feels to, to learn later that you don't like who you were before. And, and I think it's a constant process, right? I mean, you, you think about your own life, where you are today versus 10 years ago. I'm sure there are things that you, you know, you kind of wish you knew then what you know now. And so I, I do think it's constant and ongoing. For me, again, it goes back to getting punched in the mouth, you know, day one at Stanford. Um, you know, you immediately realize that you're not that, you know, you're not that incredible, you know, perfect thing in your mind that you had, and you're going to have to fight and claw for every inch, um, you know, athletically, academically, socially, et cetera. Um, and, and just be more true to yourself. You don't need to try to create a, you know, an image, an illusion of who you are that fits this, you know, in high school for me, like fit this, you know, all American jock, persona because at heart I'm kind of a nerdy quirky you know <laughs> quirky guy uh, that, that's more who I am goofy nerdy quirky and I was trying to create this like tough guy jock image illusion um, that you know being kind of not that nice or um, treating people a certain way fit into that uh, but it wasn't who I was uh, and, and so getting back to the core of who you really are and what's true to your values, I think is just the most important thing. On the kind of nerdy, quirky aspect of things, <laughs> what are some of your other interests? Again, you, you played sports throughout college and throughout your life, but what are the other quirky, nerdy interests or things that you gravitated towards? Yeah, I love reading, man. That's like my number one. Um, I, uh, you know, from high school and even through college, I totally lost my love for reading. I I just found when you're being forced to read certain things, you, you know, it, it changes how you view reading. Um, and, and I think it's a really sad thing about our current ac- academic and, um, and educational system that it does that to kids. And you see it pretty consistently. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, excuse me, a little kid, it was my number one passion was was reading you know sports and reading uh and somewhere along the line we lose that um as we start forcing kids to read certain things and and so i rediscovered my love for reading after i got out of stanford um and uh and have really kind of embraced and started to create a community around that which has been you know a fun and again nerdy quirky thing that i do i mean i i probably read 
somewhere between 60 to 70 books a year, um, get through about a, you know, book, book, two books a week. Um, and I send out a, you know, I started kind of sending out recommendations to a small group of family and friends who were interested in, you know, what are some good books they should be picking up and slowly built it, um, over time, really just through word of mouth to, you know, now sending out kind of a monthly recommendation list with, you know, some kind of quirky stuff in there to, uh, to over a thousand people. So, that's been probably, you know, my number one passion outside of what I do for work. Um, and, you know, in my post baseball life is just refining that love for just sitting down with a good, good book, cup of coffee and, and just getting lost in it. When did you start to think about what you wanted to do post college and how did you make your decision to, to follow the, the career path that you're on right now? Yeah. Uh, so there were a couple pieces of it. I mean, one, I got hurt. So baseball got forced out of the equation. I, uh, I'd had a good career at Stanford, probably could have gone and, you know, gotten what they call, a, you know, a, a cheeseburger and a plane ticket to go play in the minor league somewhere, um, you know, and then gotten cut probably after about a year when they realized that wasn't any good. Um, but uh, that, that kind of got forced out of the equation. And I hurt my arm. Uh, so then, you know, that was my senior year at Stanford. Um, I was, you know, three, four years in, hadn't had a real internship or a real job um, because we had to play and train during the summers. Uh, and so made the decision then to kind of punt it basically for a year. And, and I did that by um, by applying and then doing a master's program at Stanford. So stayed for a fifth year, which really gave me the optionality to just be around the school more, think more about what I wanted to do and find mentors and professors and, and, uh, you know, and mentors in business who could help kind of advise me and guide me on that. Um, and that ended up being the best decision I ever made. You know, I got to study that year, um, under Condoleezza Rice, former secretary of state. She was my advisor for my master's in public policy, which was incredible. Um, she's an incredible mentor advisor, um, I got to be around a lot of business people who had spent time in a variety of industries who gave me perspectives on, you know, what I should be looking for and how to kind of, um, you know, basically narrow the funnel to what, you know, what I would be interested in, what my skill set was suited for. Um, and that ended up leading to the job I took. Um, a mentor of mine who um, had spent a career in private equity, um, a very successful career in private equity. Um, basically referred me to my current bosses um, because they were looking to hire one more person at this level and they were, you know, in the final week of making a decision. And so it was extremely serendipitous. Um, I probably would have wound up back in New York where my um, then girlfriend, now wife was living. You know, I wanted to move back east and get, get to stop the long distance thing with her. Um, but this opportunity came up and something about it just felt right. Um, the people, as soon as I got on the phone with them and was talking to them, it was just like, man, these are the kind of people I want to go to battle with. You know, I've been on teams my whole life. Um, I want to continue to be on teams. It might not be in a sports context, but I want to, I want to go to war with people. Um, and I want to mm -hmm. do it alongside people I really trust and love. And, and they just felt like that type, um, that type of group. So what exactly are you doing now? So tell me to us about what it is that you do, uh, the firm that you joined, uh, and what you're up to. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I joined a firm um, called Altamont Capital Partners. We're a private equity fund uh, based in Palo Alto, so just south of San Francisco, kind of the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, private equity, just to to kind of take a 10,000 foot view on it, basically, we invest in businesses, um, support them for uh, a period of time, you know, call it three to seven years. And during that period, we work on various initiatives to help improve the business earnings profile. And then on the back end of that, we typically sell our invest our invested stake to you know new investors, take the business public um, via some means to return capital to our investors. Um, so, so our basic business model is you know invest, improve, and then sell. Um, and, and so for me, you know what that means is I spend about half my time working with the portfolio companies. So the companies we've already invested in, and that's working with them, you know, directly up and down the organization to help improve their businesses. Uh, and, you know, that can take a million different forms, but, uh, you know, it's everything from kind of board level strategy to, you know, boots on the ground, deep analysis um, in, the, in the weeds. Uh, and then the other half of my time is spent looking for new, interesting businesses to invest in. Uh, you know, the American economy, global economy is extremely diverse. There's a ton of interesting stuff out there and, and entrepreneurs constantly launching and doing new, interesting things. And, you know, we're kind of open for business to, to try to support and help them grow. Uh, we typically invest in big kind of scale businesses, you know, businesses that are profitable and off the ground, not startups where, where venture capital tends to focus. Um, and so that does narrow the universe to some extent, but, uh, but it is an incredibly diverse um, economy and, and, uh, you know, and one that's been really exciting to be a part of over the last five, six years that I've been at Altamont. Okay. If you, if you're comfortable, if you're even able to talk about this, are there any in particular or, or, or one in particular that really stands out for you that you kind of dug into, got involved with, um, you know, fat, almost discovered a little bit, you know, and one thing you're like, okay, here's, here's really like a true testament of, of what I enjoy doing and what we do here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Fox, Fox racing is the one that I would point to here. Um, so it's a motocross. You've probably seen it. The logo is extremely, extremely well known. They, they do performance motocross and mountain bike, uh, apparel and gear. Um, so it's yep, I own, I own some. Oh, awesome. <laughs> awesome. Good, good customer. Ho hopefully, uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it. Don't tell me now if, uh, if you don't, but, um, no, so that's, that's, a, it's a really incredible story. I mean, the Fox family founded the business in the 1970s, um, really created an industry, um, and, and built it up over, you know, 30 plus years to be this $200 million plus, um, you know, key, you know, number one player, um, in that industry. And we partnered with them in 2014, um, uh, to really help try to take the business to the next level. Um, it was, you know, predominantly motocross at the time. Um, it had had some challenges and it kind of stagnated a bit. Um, and, and, you know, they needed kind of fresh, fresh thoughts and fresh blood to come in and, and help kind of continue to spark things going forward. And that's been one, um, where, you know, in 2014, when we first invested in it, I was an analyst. Um, I had just joined Altamont. And so I was like totally on the ground in the weeds, you know, doing 
you know, really detailed analysis on different aspects of their business model and ways they could improve their business. Um, and over time, it's been really neat for me personally to see it because the business has continued to improve, continued to kind of grow in its core verticals, um, you know, continued to really scale some new verticals like um, like its e-commerce business, like its mountain biking business, which has become huge and is, is extremely popular. Um, but I've gotten to see it personally from a development standpoint as I, you know, as I grew from being an analyst then to now I'm a vice president um, to now sitting on the board of the company. Um, you know, it is it's just been an extremely rewarding experience to see the development of the organization, the development of the company. Um, and really be, you know, along for the ride, but also driving the ride um, in a lot of ways over these last five, six years. That That's that's an awesome, awesome story. I want to ask you also a little bit about the relationship between, let's say, analyst, you know, and even private equity and the entrepreneur and operator of the business that you become an investor and, and partner there. How do you approach that dynamic? You know, there are all sorts of stories about about that dynamic. Um, yeah. What's been your experience? Yeah, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, being a tool in the tool belt of the entrepreneur or CEO. I, uh, you know, I have always felt if you put yourself in an entrepreneur's shoes, someone new, a new investor coming into your business, um, you know, they're new to it. You've been in it for years, however long it is, whatever industry it is, you've been in it for years. Do you really want to get told that you're thinking about something wrong or doing something the wrong way? Um, you know, if I'm them, it's like, absolutely not. Who's this kid coming in and trying to talk to me about my numbers? You know, I've been doing this for 30 years. And so I've always appreciated that that perspective um, and wanted to avoid that dynamic. And so for me, you know, it, it's very much from the get-go when I joined as an analyst to now, I, I want to be useful. I want to be value add. I want to create value for the, you know, for the entrepreneurs I work with. And so that means being a tool in their tool belt. It doesn't mean command and control from the top. Um, and, and so I try to push that in all of the work I do because that dynamic and that relationship and the rapport you build with your managers is absolutely essential to having good outcomes. If you can build a strong, trusting relationship with the CEOs and management teams that you work with, you will be successful. Um, it's just the bottom line. And so I've always prioritized that. And, and candidly, it goes back to being, you know, from an athletic background and, and always being in a team context where you work with and have to get along with 30 different personalities um, in order to function well. We deal with management teams that are all very different. You deal with CEOs that come from very different backgrounds, um, that kind of have very different values, very different belief sets. And you need to be able to function, build a rapport, and build trust with, with all of them. And, and so to me, it all goes back to being, you know, being a tool in their tool belt, being a, you know, kind of ser servant leadership. Get out there and really, you know, pr practice what you preach, put your head down. Um, you know, and just grind with them. We've got a lot of time on our hands right now, right yeah. now, um, take, taking this back to the beginning. So a couple of quick kind of one-off questions. Sure. What are you reading right now? So right now I've got two things. I just, I'm just about to finish a book on the 1918 Spanish flu, which is very, very relevant right now. I decided it made sense to read it. It's called Pale Rider. 
um, which I've uh, which I've loved, uh, and then also reading a book um, by uh, by one of my favorite authors, Eric Larson, um, called Thunderstruck, which is uh, which is a pretty incredible story of uh, uh, of the uh, kind of nonfiction historical nonfiction variety. Okay, you also mentioned coffee earlier what do you what what do you drink what's your coffee what do you drink how do you drink it what's the routine you know this has been one of the things that's changed for me uh in this new quarantine life i have gotten back to a uh becoming a bulletproof coffee guy um i turned back to intermittent fasting now that i'm not training first thing in the morning um so during this quarantine i've been doing you know just waking up in the morning and doing a uh, doing a bulletproof coffee with um, with ghee and collagen protein and uh, MCT oil powder. Um, so I've been been doing that now for two and a half, three weeks, and feeling great. What's your take on intermittent fasting? What's your experience been? I love it if you're busy. Um, I get starving if I'm not doing anything and I can't eat. But you know the way the last few weeks has been, just back to back to back meetings all morning. Um, I find my focus to be on another level um, when I haven't eaten and I don't need to be thinking about eating. Um, and so it's been phenomenal for me. Are you an eat to live or a live to eat guy? Like, do you view just food as fuel or no. is it like, okay, I, I want to try all kinds of new things? No, I'm a food as fuel guy, man. It, it's People think I'm weird about this. I could eat the same exact thing every day and never get sick of it. I have absolutely no i mean i i know what i like and i will eat it you know if it's good for me and it's fueling my body i will eat it nonstop. i have no kind of taste buds around stuff that i that i need to fulfill what's the go what's the go-to meal i said okay you can eat the same thing as you said every day whatever what what's your go-to if you just said okay i need this bring me this i think if i had to have one meal every meal for the rest of my life it's probably like a you know uh, grass fed steak, um, and a baked potato and broccoli. Uh, that's probably my go-to. Although, you know, my more common meal would probably be like ground beef and white rice. What are you listening to? Music, podcast, even audio book. What do you, what do you do? Yeah. You know, when I, when I do kind of cardio and different things like that, I do try to listen to audiobooks. have a tough time focusing sometimes. Um, if I'm, you know, kind of going above a certain heart rate, um, I, uh, you know, I do like podcasts. I found I bounce around. I'm not like a loyal listener to, uh, you know, to one, you know, a lot of people like, um, you know, how I built this. I've listened to that on and off. Um, obviously listen to yours, um, have always enjoyed it since the, uh, since the early days. So I appreciate that. Uh, and then from a music standpoint, you know, I'm very, uh, I, I would say I have an eclectic taste in music. You know, I, in the summer windows down in the car, I'm listening to country. Um, but when I'm trying to get, you know, hyped up to do a workout, I'm listening to rap. Um, so I'm a little bit all over the map. What's the what's the San Francisco private equity kind of look? You know, look, style, like how do you how do you approach that? That shit important to you? Not really, or you know, dress yeah, for the yeah. part? Yeah, I uh, you know, I head up our our consumer, uh, branded consumer efforts at Altamont. And so as a result of that. I kind of got to look a little cool. Um, you know, I can't, I can't come in looking, uh, looking too stiff because most of these businesses I'm going to talk to and pitch and, and work with, you know, they're, 
they're uh, they're hip, right? Like Fox Racing, you're not wearing a suit and tie to work every day. It's you know it's a more casual culture. So um, we have dress for your day. You know it's it's a more casual um, casual look. I would say I fall on the pretty far casual end of it in general. I like to be comfortable, um, but I like to look good, um, and I care about um, care about style. My uh, my wife is a is a fashion designer. Um, so as a result, I think I also have a higher bar because I can't uh, can't disappoint her. Absolutely. Do we do we plug her? Where do we find where do we find her designs? Yeah. So she is um, heading up design at a company called Hill City, um, which is a new brand um, launched by Gap Inc. So it was originally conceived as the men's line for Athleta, um, and then they ended up kind of finding their own voice with it and launching it as its own brand. So it's kind of performance inspired um uh streetwear as well as um athleisure wear uh, super super comfortable great stuff great quality products um and you know I, I do say that partially biased but i also really do love their products that's awesome what are some of your favorite brands what are you wearing oh man you know i wear a lot of their stuff because i i have to um and, and i've really enjoyed it and i don't want to uh don't want to get a divorce um i love you know i love our brands i love fox i love brixton uh another brand that we uh invested in where i'm on the board um they're kind of a you know smaller street skate surf inspired you know kind of garage punk rock inspired um, brand based out of oceanside california um so i wear a lot of their stuff uh, you know, and then I'm kind of, I'm kind of simple, right? I like Levi's jeans. Um, you know, I like a good pair of boots if I can find them. Um, got introduced to my first pair of Tacovas uh, cowboy boots recently and, and really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty simple though. I, uh, you know, I'm not an over the top style guy typically. I like to get dressed up now and then. So I, I like having a good tux, uh, but, um, but I keep it pretty simple. When's the last time you threw in a baseball? Oh, geez. Um, you know, I still have a few friends that are playing in the majors now. And so when I do throw baseball, it's in the off season with them, just trying to help them out. Um, one of my roommates is the right fielder for the Oakland athletics. Um, and so I spend a lot of time with him in the off season. He's, he's a neighbor and lives right nearby me. And so, uh, he and I will throw a baseball around every off season. Um, and it doesn't hurt anymore, which is great. Uh, but I'd say I, I should be sticking to golf at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so when this when this is all passed and we're allowed out again and life returns to some semblance of of normalcy or or the new normal whatever that may be um what are the goals um personally professionally athletically what are you chomping at the bit to get out and do I'm hoping at the bit to get back out to some of these companies we've invested in man I I I thrive on in-person interaction um, I love just being in the room with people and being able to chop it up and really talk through strategy. And, and for me, this is going to present an unbelievable, maybe once in a lifetime set of opportunities for, for strong companies to come out, come out of this and thrive. Um, and I want to be on the forefront of that. I want to get out there with them and help them strategize around how they're going to you know, operate, grow and thrive in this new world and in this new normal. Um, so I'm really chomping at the bit to just get let out to go do that. Um, you know, it's going to be a challenge seeing how long it all plays out and, and when it's going to happen, when we're going to get let loose. But, uh, but that's really what I'm chomping at the bit for, um, you know, athletically, 
you know, physically, I want to just keep making progress. I hate the idea of, of looking back after a year and saying, man, I didn't make any physical progress, whether it was strength or, or, uh, or cosmetic. Um, and, and so I really want to, you know, continue to focus on that and set near term, midterm goals to, to make sure I'm doing that. All right, my friend, we did it. Sahil Bloom, Midlife Mail Podcast. Great way to conclude. Super, super impressed uh, with you, my friend. And I really appreciate kind of us connecting and engaging. You know, you never really know where some of these things are are gonna go. And I like to shape and kind of craft and navigate through. And and you provided so much insight. Um and direction, I think, to help us as men, you know, navigate for me personally as a parent, um, and also kind of as a professional in what I do, uh, just grateful for the opportunity to get to chat with you, brought a ton to the table, uh, and I look forward to certainly having you back, um, and, and keeping up with everything that you're doing. Cause it's, it's pretty awesome. My friend, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's, it was a great pleasure. Stay safe, stay healthy. And uh, guys out there, if you like what you hear, if you want to learn more, if you've got ideas for episodes, got new midlife men, guys to come on, products, etc., hit me up. Find me at gregscheinman.com or at gregscheinman on Instagram. Subscribe to the show. Subscribe to the newsletter. If you like us, leave that review, that five-star rating. It really helps us. Uh, grateful. Thank you more than ever. Appreciate it. Until next week, we're out. You've been listening to the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheinman, presented by Ends Group. Ends Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit endsgroup.net. All right, guys, I want to talk a little bit about Mascot Books. They are one of the country's leading hybrid book publishers, and they can take your big idea and transform it into a print or digital book that matches your voice and vision. Whether your story is one of growth, balance, success, or all of the above, Mascot Books will bring it to life. Head over to mascotbooks.com to learn more. I am a big believer that everybody has a story. Everybody's got a book in them. Not just the athletes, CEOs, entrepreneurs, risk takers, but everybody. You know you've got an idea for a book. If you do, if you want to put it out there, head on over to mascotbooks.com. These guys are the best in the business. I have known Naren Ariel and his crew at Mascot Books for years. I've had him on the Midlife Mail podcast. Go back and check that out. We've also had a couple of his authors on the show as well. If you've got that story in you, if you want to be an author, you can do it. Mascotbooks.com. I want to thank these guys for supporting the show, keeping the midlife male movement growing. Mascot Books. Check it out.